going to turn together in the scriptures to Hebrews chapter 13. We're thankful for both the invitation and the kind words of welcome. It's always a joy to, to be at these meetings and a privilege to be asked to, to minister at them. Uh, we always enjoy the times of fellowship together to be able to meet up again and to renew that fellowship it's hard to believe that it's a year since last we were here and at that time anticipating the special meeting in Westminster Chapel the next day for the 100th anniversary of the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony and we look back to that meeting with very fond <coughs> memories indeed Mr Douglas was with us at this meeting uh, last year, and Mr. McClung as well uh, was here in preparation for the special meeting uh, the next day. But we're thankful to the Lord for His good hand upon the testimony. We're thinking about that a little earlier at uh, the committee meeting, uh, the Lord's faithfulness to us uh, in maintaining the testimony, and we pray that its influence will grow uh, stronger and stronger uh, just as uh, as the years go by. It's very nice to be here to speak, to bring this uh, series to a conclusion. We pray the Lord will bless us. And having been in Africa for the last 12 days or so, speaking through an interpreter, uh, it'll, it'll be a great relief to be, able to, to be able to speak without an interpreter. Or maybe you might need an interpreter, depending on how you, you read the accent. Uh, we had some young people from North Antrim went to Kenya one time, and they were to speak through an interpreter. And the, the fellow from Kenya came to the missionary and asked, are those fellows really speaking English? <laughs> With the North Antrim accent that sounded like a foreign language to them. Uh, one of the times that I was in Kenya, I was telling the people at the meeting a little about my background. And I said I'd ministered in Wales for nine years. So the fellow that was interpreting, uh, the only whale he could think of was the fish. So he told the people I'd been in the fish for nine years. So Jonah didn't even manage that. So the missionary had to speak up and correct him <laughs> that, that day. So we're going to come to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, I'll take just as my text, the, the words of the 21st verse. Uh, Make you perfect in every good work to do as well working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Uh, amen. We'll just have a wee word of prayer together as we come uh, to the scriptures tonight. Heavenly Father, uh, we bow in your presence to give thee praise for the blessings of this day. Your word says that Goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. We're able to testify uh, to that afresh this day. And we thank you, Father, for your goodness that enables us to be here tonight. Thank you for this gathering. Uh, we recognize, Father, uh, your mercy even in preserving these meetings and continuing them. Your hand has been upon them. We want to thank you for the meetings. And we think of another year of these monthly meetings that is coming to a conclusion tonight and we, we want to take time to raise our Ebenezer to thee and we can say hitherto hath uh, the Lord helped us as we look forward in your will to the new year we pray that you'll bless every meeting that will be convened, we commit them into your hands and commit the way unto thee and Lord we want to ask that you'll give the increase your, your word says Call unto me and I will answer thee. We seek to do that, Father. We call upon thee earnestly in prayer. And we ask thee to, to show us great and mighty things in the days that, that lie ahead. We want to pray that you'll bless this testimony. Uh, we want to pray that you'll bless every aspect uh, of the testimony. We want to pray, Father, that you'll create uh, a greater interest in days to come in the, the prophetic scriptures, in the coming again of our Saviour. Lord, we take 
the matter upon our hearts tonight and ask thee to teach us. We remember that great prayer that uh, comes almost at the close of the word of God. Uh, Even so come, uh, Lord Jesus. And Father, that would be uh, the earnest cry even of our hearts tonight. So we want to pray that you'll settle us, uh, still our hearts. Thank you that we've known your presence uh, tonight already. We want to pray that you'll put your hand in a very clear way just now upon the remainder uh, of this meeting. We pray that you'll guide us. We want to pray that you'll give help, grant us utterance. And we pray that the anointing of your spirit will rest tonight upon the preaching of your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The subject tonight uh, for this <coughs> final study is that of uh, practical godliness and, and how appropriate that is as we think of the day in which we live, uh, the day in which uh, we're found. Uh, you will know, you'll be familiar as I am, that even the term godliness itself is not one that is so readily used even among the Lord's people. It's not a subject that you hear so much said upon uh, in church pulpits in the day in which uh, we live. I want to remind you of this uh, at the outset. Uh, it's, it's an important principle uh, to keep in mind, particularly as you read the New Testament scriptures. And that is the fact that every, every book of the Bible contains uh, two things in particular. Every uh, book in the New Testament, particularly the epistles of Paul. And that is they contain both doctrine uh, and duty or sometimes it's described as uh, precept and uh, practice. So that, great, uh, that is the great truths of the scripture, uh, the great truths of the gospel. Uh, they're set out and, and they're taught. And then uh, before the, the epistle of the book will come to a close, you're shown how those things apply to your life or how you should work them out uh, every day as you live here upon uh, this earth. So I want you to fix that uh, in your mind. It'll be an appropriate introduction or an appropriate preparation uh, even for what we're going to consider together tonight. There's doctrine and then uh, the duty. And that is, as I've said, especially true uh, in Paul's epistles. And that's what he's doing here uh, also in Hebrews chapter uh, 13. This final chapter uh, of the book is not doctrinal. Uh, in the main it's a chapter that is practical it's a chapter that deals with uh, many practical uh, issues of Christian living uh, issues of the Christian life that every one of us here tonight uh, is uh, familiar with you will know that his theme in this book from the very beginning has uh, been a theme all about Christ he sought to magnify the saviour his theme right throughout the book has been the supremacy uh, of uh, the Lord Jesus. And that that has been set out for you in previous nights and previous uh, studies that have preceded uh, this meeting tonight. The supremacy of Christ over the angels, over Moses, the supremacy of his sacrifice over the Old Testament sacrifices, uh, and so on. And what a a great and worthy subject uh, that is. But what he does here in this final chapter is he reveals to us or he shows us how that great truth should work out in your life as a child of God. What he's saying here is if you believe, if you understand as a Christian uh, this great truth of the supremacy of our Saviour, if you really grasp that, then it will have a very deep and lasting impact Uh, upon your life and a very deep and lasting impact upon uh, your walk with God. Let me remind you, if you need any reminding of the fact uh, that we live in very wicked days, there's evidence of that uh, all around us, evidence of it in the laws that have been passed in our parliament, uh, the lifestyles that have been lived, some of them in the public eye so blatantly. If you think of what Peter said, it's a, it's a verse that's often referred to in meetings such as this. 
Uh, Peter said that this world of ours is a dark place. And there's not a doubt about that. And the reality is that it will get darker as the time goes past. Uh, the end time period leading up to the return of the Lord Jesus. Uh, despite what the post-millennials say and believe. Uh, the end time period is going to be a period that will be marked by great wickedness. And the Bible is very clear about that. You think of what Paul said uh, when he was writing to young Timothy. That evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. Uh, deceiving and being deceived. So it's very clear. The times are going to get worse. Uh, the evil that we see is going to increase. Evil men and seducers, it says, will wax worse and worse. Do you remember the words of the Saviour in his great Olivet Discourse? He said that because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And that's what's happening in society, not just in our own land, but across the earth. Iniquity is abounding. And, and what a warning there is uh, for us there, for all of us, as the children of the Lord and the warning the Saviour sounds. Because of that, the love of many uh, will wax cold. So the challenge for us is to keep our hearts, to guard our hearts, and to seek to maintain uh, our walk with uh, the Saviour. I stress this to you, uh, brethren and sisters, in the introduction tonight, the great need of the hour, the great need of the day in which we live is godly living uh, by the Lord's people. A life that is lived uh, for the Lord. Uh, a consecrated life. Uh, a life that is lived for the Lord in its entirety. And that's really what Paul is urging here uh, in this final chapter of the, uh, the book of Hebrews. And let me make this uh, clear to you. We've made reference already to the wickedness of the days in which we live. I want to stress to you that uh, the wicked days, the wicked society, that is no excuse. No excuse for being careless. No excuse for being carnal as a child of God. And yet the sad thing is that, uh, that many do. Uh, reference has been made tonight already to, to Enoch. Uh, to come to hear Mr. Foster speak on that subject. At the next one of these monthly meetings at the beginning of the year in January. Let me remind you that Enoch uh, lived in wicked days. One of the most wicked societies that this world of ours has ever known. Reference is made to it in the little book of Jude. Towards the end of the New Testament scriptures. Where, where Enoch is referred to there in the book of Jude. Four times. Four times in the 15th verse. The word ungodly is used of the days and of the people among which uh, Enoch lived. It says to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So I want you to think of that. Enoch lived in ungodly days. <laughs> Enoch lived in a society just like our own. But remember that he lived a godly life amidst that ungodly society. He is known in the scriptures, and most people that know anything about Enoch even to this day, know that he was remembered as a man that walked with God. And it's good to put it in its context, the backdrop in which he walked with the Lord. So be encouraged, brethren and sisters. By that example uh, in the scriptures. It's possible to live a godly life in the most ungodly uh, society. And let me just slip this in as we're thinking about Enoch. He was a, an SGAT speaker as well. Because the Bible says that he preached about the Lord's return. That little book of Jude says as well that the message that he preached was behold the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his uh, saints. That's very interesting uh, indeed. Remember what it says in the 12th Psalm. As you think of godliness and think of the de decrease of godliness in our society, the 12th Psalm begins with these words. Help, Lord, for the godly man uh, ceaseth. That's a good prayer. 
to take upon your heart in these days in which uh, we live. And brethren and sisters, that opening verse of Psalm 12 describes our society. It describes the generation in which we're found, the days in which we live. The reality, you only have to think of the meeting in which we're in tonight. The reality is there's fewer godly people to be found today than ever there has been before. But remember that 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 psalm is especially a reference to to the end time. Uh, Things are going to get worse as we've emphasised already. The the psalm particularly refers to the, the days leading up to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it impresses upon our hearts the great need to cry to the Lord for help. And I encourage you to do that. There's greater challenges, greater difficulties for us to be faithful to the Lord than ever before. Uh, We need to cry to the Lord for his help, especially to live a godly life in the midst of an ungodly generation. We need to pray the Lord will help us to be faithful uh, to him in the days in which we're found. He and his sovereignty and his providence has placed us in this end time uh, society uh, in which uh, we live. And remember that there are many scriptures that exhort us uh, to godliness. Let me just mention to you very quickly a few of those. Uh, I think the, the words of John in his epistle. John said that every man that has this hope in him. Remember that's the great hope of the coming of Christ. The coming again of the Saviour. Uh, that, that's the, the blessed hope of which the scriptures speak. And John says that every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. You know, I think there's not a doubt about it. One of the reasons why there is so much ungodliness abroad, not just in the world, but even in the church, is because of the lack of preaching there is upon the subject of the second coming of the Saviour. The devil knows, even if the ministers don't, even if the church doesn't, the devil knows the good that preaching upon this subject will do among the, the Lord's people. So that's why he wants to silence the pulpit uh, upon this subject. If it's preached to right, it will have a great impact, a great influence upon the lives of, of God's people. Think as well of what Paul said writing to Timothy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Those are two things that are very rare in the day in which we live godliness contentment very little godliness around very little contentment around you know they asked John D. Rockefeller one time when he died he was worth 900 million dollars they asked him how much is enough and he said just a little bit more so it doesn't matter how much money you have you, you, you never think you have enough people are never content they always just want Just want a wee bit more. Paul said as well to Timothy, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Here's the thing that should have great priority in our hearts, in our lives, something that we should really be striving after as the Lord's people. Peter said as well, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, one day everything that people hold dear will be gone. He says, what manner of persons ought ye to be? In all holy conversation and godliness. Remember the word conversation there has to do with our behaviour, not so much to do with our speech. So in all holy conversation and godliness, our behaviour, the life we live, should be a life that is holy and a life that stands out for its godliness. So what is the Lord looking for, brethren and sisters, in the lives of his people? What is needed Today in the church and in our land, more than anything else, it's godliness. Godliness in the lives of uh, the Lord's people. The Lord is looking for and is encouraging in every heart, every heart in this meeting, in the heart of every one of his people, he's encouraging godliness. And that's something that should be true in every period of the history of the church. Not just... Uh, in, in one certain period and it's something that should be true even in the end time period 
And remember that we're living in that period where the days that will lead up to the coming again of the Saviour. So how should we live in these days in a way that glorifies him? Live a life that is godly, stands out for its godliness. And not only should it be true in every period of history, it should be true in every part of our lives. Some people major on certain things and they neglect others. They make a big issue out of one thing and then there's something very seriously wrong in their life, but they seem for some reason to overlook that. The Lord wants us to be godly in every part, every part of our lives. The reality is that every part of the life that you live should stand out uh, for the Lord. And that is really the message of this final chapter of uh, the book of Hebrews. So here's a chapter from beginning to end, right through every verse of it, of practical godliness. And I want us to look at it for a few minutes. I want us to look at some uh, areas of life, your life. And, and I stress to you tonight, it's just some. If we were to go through every matter, every issue uh, that Paul raises here in this final chapter, it, it, it would be a series really in itself to, to pick out every uh, area of practical godliness that he speaks of. So we're just going to look at some uh, where godliness should be seen. Godliness should stand out in the life that, uh, that you live. I want you to consider with me, first of all, the matter of strife. Because you consider the, the clear exhortation with which the chapter begins. You look there at the four words of the first verse. Let brotherly love uh, continue. And that does need to be stressed in the days in which we live, brethren and sisters. The sad thing is we live in days when there's so little love, even among the Lord's people. Remember that uh, the church at Philadelphia, spoken of in the opening chapters of the book of the Revelation, the church at Philadelphia was the church of brotherly love. That's the meaning of the name. But the sad thing is there's not many churches or fellowships that are Philadelphia in the days in which we are found that have that characteristic uh, today. And you know something? That's one of the reasons why people aren't drawn in to our churches. It's all the disputing. It's all the divisions that's driving people away uh, from the churches. You know, there's a lovely little story about the D.L. Moody like to tell. D.L. Moody ran the second biggest Sunday school in America. The biggest Sunday school in the United States in those days was run by a man called uh, John Wanamaker. He became the postman general for the United States. He opened the first large department store in the United States as well. But Moody used to tell the story of a little fella in Chicago that walked five miles every Sunday morning to go to Sunday school. And he walked past several other churches and several other Sunday schools on the way, but he wanted to go at the D.L. Moody Sunday School. And they asked him one day, why do you go so far? Why do you walk past all of those other churches and Sunday schools along the way? And this is the answer he gave. He said, because they love a fella over there. See, he could see the difference, the warmth, the love that he received. And you, brethren and sisters, that's what's missing in many Christians' lives. And it's also missing in many Christian churches as well. Often all you ever hear, if you ask about a church and a report is given, all you ever hear is about strife and division and fights and bitterness among the Lord's people. As it was when Moses and Joshua came down from the mount into the camp of Israel again, there's the noise of war. The noise of war in the camp. You think of what James said. It's a very striking statement. Whence come these wars and fightings among you? Notice he's, he's not talking about war between countries. He uses the, war, the word war in the context of, of fighting between Christians. Isn't that very striking? Uh, and I wonder is that true of you? Maybe true of uh, your church? 
If it is who want to make it clear to you tonight, that's not the Lord's will. What the Lord wants is for love to be shown, love to be displayed uh, by his people. Here's a great question for you just to consider. How will the world know as they look on? How will they know that we really are the Lord's? How will they know that we really belong to him? We're truly saved, truly born again. Do you know what the New Testament answer to that question is? By the love there is between us. Hereby shall all men know that ye are my disciples. If you have love one toward the other. So I want you to see, brothers and sisters, how important as a testimony to an unbelieving, ungodly world. I want you to see how important brotherly love actually is. And I want to urge you to display it and to to continue in that in the days that lie ahead. So that's a little uh, about strife. And it's obvious from the exhortation Paul gives there that that the the brotherly love was diminishing. The fact that he had to encourage it, that that must have been diminishing among these Hebrew uh, believers. I want you to see as well, he mentions here uh, strangers. If you look at verse 2 of the chapter, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So I think that's a very interesting and a very instructive, a very informative verse. What the the Lord does here through his servant is he guides us as Christians, guides our thoughts, guides our attitudes with regard to strangers. They ponder it carefully. And consider just for a moment, even in your own heart and mind, how you treat strangers uh, yourself. I think it's true to say, I think it's fair to say, because of the wicked days in which we live, because so many people are deceptive and untrustworthy, many people today are, are slow to speak to what we would call a stranger. You wouldn't even speak to them, let alone entertain them let alone bring them into your house and uh, provide hospitality for them but here the Lord gives us a very clear word of caution here he says it is our duty that we're not to neglect we're, we're to not to make excuses about it it's something we're to be careful about that we're to attend to and that is the care of strangers the care of them uh, both those who are strangers to the church remember how Paul put it Writing to the Ephesian believers, he talked about strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. So this injunction here in verse 2 guides us not only to those who are strangers to the church, but also those people that are strangers to you personally. In other words, people that you've never met before. And what we're taught here in this text is that those people are to experience our Christian love. We've thought a little about that already. Uh, in the first verse, but they're, they're to experience uh, that brotherly love. And they're to experience it by, by means of our hospitality that is, expe- that is extended uh, to them. So the clear lesson is this, take it to heart tonight. We're not just to be hospitable to our family and to our friends, to the people that we know. It's to go much further than that. It's to go much wider than that. We're to extend that same hospitality and entertainment to people that are complete strangers. And what a challenge. What a challenge that is, uh, brethren and sisters. Because remember one of the things that that will do for us, if we're, we're praying as we ought, we'll be praying every day, the Lord will give us an open door to speak for him. And bringing in those strangers will, will give you an opportunity to to make a witness uh, to Christ. Uh, you can become a missionary in your own doorstep, in your own home. Speak to someone that maybe would never have otherwise have heard the message uh, of uh, the gospel. But this is a very interesting verse, as I've said to you. Because look at the motive that is suggested here as to why you should entertain strangers. It says, because in entertaining those strangers, thereby some have entertained Angels, unawares. 
I think in some ways that's a staggering statement. The reality is, you just don't know who that stranger or who that person uh, might be. You may be familiar with the name of Archbishop Usher, James Usher. I live in Labour in our mass city where he was once uh, the Archbishop. He, he was a great scholar. He wrote that book, The Annals of the World. It runs into almost a thousand pages. In that book, he, he states what he believed to be the date of creation through his great scholarly work and studies of the scriptures. He, he, he used to like to dress up, disguise himself. He was travelling in Scotland on one occasion and he came near the home of Samuel Rutherford. And he disguised himself as a, a down and out, a tramp. Mrs Rutherford was known for taking in the down and outs of the community. So she took in Rutherford along with all the rest, but didn't know it was Samuel Rutherford. Or sorry, she took in James Usher, but didn't know that among these group of tramps was, was the great Archbishop of Armagh. So what happened was uh, she used to catechise them after supper, ask them questions. So she asked Usher, how many commandments are there? He says, ma'am, there's 11. There's 11 commandments. So of course she told him off, rebuked him quite severely. Every child in my Sunday school would be able to answer that question. That's a very simple question. Every child would know there's only 10 commandments. She you know, really rubbed it in. So later on, he, he went to his room and he was praying. And Samuel Rutherford heard him pray. He said, there's only one man I know that could pray like that. That's James Usher. So he went down and found out it was Usher. So he said to him, you'll have to preach for me in the morning. He says, I will on one condition that you don't tell your wife who I am. <laughs> don't, don't tell your wife that she's actually entertaining the Archbishop of Armagh. So he got up in the pulpit the next morning and he announced his text. And he took for his text the words in the New Testament, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. So he looked down at Mrs. Rutherford from the pulpit and he said, you know, this could be viewed as the 11th commandment. So that, that was how he proceeded. But the, the reason I tell you that story is the fact that she didn't know who was among those tramps. She didn't know who was in her home among those strangers. And the same might be true of us, men and women. You just don't know uh, who that stranger might be. And here you learn something even more amazing. Because you learn that there were those who had actually angelic, heavenly beings in their home and at their table as they entertained uh, strangers. And it says unawares, even as they sat across the table from them, they didn't realize, didn't perceive and discern who they actually uh, were. So that's a very staggering thing, uh, men and women. It means, for one thing, that an angel can appear in a human form. Uh, contrary to popular opinion, not all angels have wings and feathers. These angels, if they sat at the table, if they came as strangers, if they didn't know that they were angels, then they appeared to them in a human form. And the Bible gives us examples of what has been cited here, of course, of those who entertained the angels unaware. For example, Abraham. Abraham did in Genesis 18. And one of those angels was the Lord himself. The verse 1 of the chapter said the Lord appeared. And then a little later in the chapter talks about three men. So the Lord himself was among those angels that appeared that day when Abraham sent, sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. The next chapter, 19, Lot also had angels that came to his home, came to Sodom and stayed in the home of Lot. And remember too, as you think of that, that Lot entertained the angels unawares. Remember the Saviour taught that, he taught it in Luke 17, that the days of Sodom would come again upon the earth. 
And there's not a doubt about it. We, we're living in those days. Luke 17, men and women, those prophetic utterances of the Lord Jesus, they're being fulfilled uh, before our very eyes. He said those days of Sodom would, would come again upon the earth uh, before he would return again uh, to this world. You know, in Windsor Baptist Church in Belfast, way back at the beginning of the year, something really sad took place. They, they held a seminar one Saturday. And they held a seminar because they wanted to, to teach their people what the Bible has to say about marriage. They're thinking of all the wickedness, same-sex marriages and so on. So they wanted to have a day set apart to teach the people, the young people in particular, what the Word of God says about marriage. Do you know what happened outside Windsor Baptist Church that day? There was a protest. A group of people gathered to protest what was going on in the church. And that was the Sodomites, the LGBT lobby, the rainbow community and all the rest of them, protesting outside the church because inside the church they were teaching what the Word of God says about marriage. So those are the days we're living in. Not that the church was protesting an LGBT event. It was the other way about, men and women. So the days of Sodom are here upon the earth. But I want you to see the fact that we live in those days. And what a wonder this is that even in this wicked day, God could send an angel to your door, to your home. That might happen one day. And the great question, as you think of that, is, how would you react to it? How would you treat them? Think of the warning here. Be careful. When a stranger stands at your door someday, be careful. Be careful to entertain strangers when they come. Because remember the Lord might send that angel to your home. And that should motivate you. Do you think of that happening? That should motivate you to live right, to live a godly life. Because the Lord could send that angel to investigate. Isn't that what he did with Lot? The Lord sent them down. He'd heard the cry of the city and so on. The Lord could send them to investigate. Sometimes he could send them to test. To test our lives and our hearts and our attitude and so on. So there's a great challenge, uh, brethren and sisters. To think the Lord could send one of those angelic beings to your home to live right, to live a, to live a life that is right and a life uh, that is godly. I, I need to move on a little. I want to come to a third thing as we think of practical godliness. That's to do with your spouse. If you look there at verse 4, mar marriage is honourable and all, the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers uh, God will judge. What's been spoken of here is faithfulness in marriage, faithfulness in mor morals. The apostle makes a very clear exhortation to it. The reality is that one of the clearest indications of the wickedness of the days in which we do live is the blatant desecration of the divine ordinance of marriage. Can I remind you, the Lord instituted uh, two important things in Eden that are foundationed blocks to any godly society. One is the Sabbath and the other is marriage. Uh, and we're found in a, in a generation and in a society where both of those are being attacked and both of them are being desecrated, not just by the people, but by the very government of the land as well. Some of you here tonight will be familiar or will know that there's a version of the authorised version of the scriptures that is known as the Wicked Bible. That's an interesting title, isn't it? It was published, I think, in 1631. It was given that name because when it was published, the seventh commandment was printed without the word not within it, so that the commandment actually read, 
thou shalt commit adultery. It's quite shocking, isn't it? The, the printer was fined £300 at the time for the mistake. That, that was, well, £300 was still a fair wee bit of money, but way back then it was, it was a lot of money. But here's the sad reality, men and women. The way our society lives today, you would think that that is actually what the commandment did say. Thou shalt commit adultery. And how sad that is. The Saviour taught that the days of Noah, we've talked about the days of Lot in Luke 17, well, the Saviour taught the days of Noah would come again. And he said that one of the things that marked the days of Noah is that they married and were given in marriage. The idea of those words, of course, is there was no faithfulness in marriage, no faithfulness to your spouse. It's referring to the fact of marrying and divorcing and remarrying and that becoming common practice. And so it is. So it is today. And how tragic that is, men and women. The Saviour also spoke about an adulterous generation. I think if ever there was a generation in the history of this world that could be described in that way, it's the generation in which we live. There's not just immorality. There, there's gross immorality taking place all around us. And how tragic that is. How tragic it is that today, as we meet in this city of London, we have the first British Prime Minister ever to live at 10 Downing Street who isn't married to the woman that he's living with. And the reality is, really nobody cares. Nobody cares a thing about it. You, you think, too, of the legalising of so-called same-sex marriages foisted upon our own province in, in, in recent weeks. There's not a doubt we live. We live in a, a wicked day. Can I remind you that the psalmist said that thy commandment is exceeding broad. The idea behind those words is that the scope, the application of God's commandments is much wider. The application of them is much wider than we often realise. I'd encourage you to take a little look at what the larger catechism has to say, particularly in its exposition of the Ten Commandments. It'll give you a lot of help in that area. And what that means is you, if you apply that principle of the Lord's commandments being exceeding broad, if you apply that to the seventh commandment, it includes and it covers all forms of fornication, all forms of immorality. So what that means is that what's happening in our land and further afield today is a great evil, it's a great abomination in the sight of God. And the breaking of his commandment in the most blatant of manners. And the lesson of this passage, brethren and sisters, particularly this verse as we're thinking of it, is that one clear evidence of, of godliness and the influence of godliness in a nation is faithfulness within the marriage bond. And I want you to be in no doubt tonight that despite what society says, despite what our government says, the marriage state is honourable, an honourable state uh, before the Lord. And remember that God has honoured marriage in a number of ways. He honoured marriage by performing and blessing the first marriage that ever took place in this world. It was the Lord himself that performed the marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So he honoured marriage. He, remember too that it's honoured by the presence of the Saviour. In John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. And it's given great honour here as well in Hebrews chapter 13. By this very clear statement that marriage is honourable in all. And I want to say to you that one evidence of rampant ungodliness in the land. And it's not just true of our own land, of any land. Is desecration of the ordinance of marriage. And, and that is what is happening. That, that's really the agenda there is today. Marriage is being uh, dishonoured. I want you to notice too, as you think of this verse, 
that these sins and these sinners are being called by their right and proper names. Do you see, do you see what the verse actually says, how they're described? They're called whoremongers and adulterers. That's very strong language, of course. You don't, you don't hear those sort of terms. You don't hear that sort of speech so much in the day in which uh, we're found. We live in a day when evil is called good and when good is called evil. They don't like to describe their lifestyle uh, as wicked. They don't like to describe their wicked doings the way that God speaks of them, the way the Bible uh, uh, speaks of them. If I could give you an example of that. They, they don't call it sodomy. In fact, they, they would get very cross, very angry, very upset if you described their lifestyle as sodomy. They call it same-sex marriage or they call it homosexuality. That, that's just a, a, a euphemism. They, they, they want to dumb it down, you see. They want to use a milder way of describing those things. There's a very interesting story about Hugh Latimer, the great reformer. He was called to preach uh, at the palace uh, before Henry VIII. He stood up very courageously, very boldly, and he preached on this text, all whoremongers and adulterers. He, he, he just spoke it out as the Lord laid it upon his heart. Henry, of course, didn't like it. Wasn't one bit pleased. He, he actually summonsed Latimer to come back and apologise to him to his face. And Latimer came back and he opened the Bible at the very same place and preached the very same sermon to him the second time. And I understand that the king was actually challenged by the message on the second occasion. But the reality is that's the sort of preacher or prophet, if you like, that's needed in the land today. You, you think of the disgrace of the conduct of Prince Andrew and all that has come out in recent days and recent weeks. Would you not need a preacher like that in the royal courts uh, in the day in which we are found, brethren and sisters? Uh, I stress to you, never be afraid to describe sin as it is. And for what it is, and as it is described for us in the scriptures uh, themselves. So that's a little about your spouse. Let, let me say something to you about submission. Uh, and here we're thinking especially, as our brother indicated in his uh, opening prayer tonight, of submission to leaders in the church. Uh, and I'll make it clear to you, it's, it's actually a major theme of the chapter. If you look at verse 7, he says, Remember them which have the rule over you, have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. And then look at verse 17. The two verses in the chapter with the seven in them, it will help you to remember them. Obey them that have the rule over you. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable uh, for you. There is a significant difference if you take time to read the commentators yourself. There's a significant difference in the two verses. And the difference is this. The verse 7, the reference, is generally understood to be made of ministers who are dead. So you think the exhortation there is to remember uh, ministers from a past generation. You're to remember their life, their example, their prayers their ministry, their teaching. And you know, to a large extent, that is something the GAT seeks to do. We, we want to remember them which have had the rule over us. We want to remember preachers from a, a former generation. We, we do that in the, the literature we publish, uh, the books that we seek to produce. We remember the great prophetic teachers of a former generation, those whose ministry was such a blessing, those whose ministry was greatly used of God. And many of those publications on the table tonight, men like Mr. Newton, Mr. Tregellis, the Bonners, Andrew and Horatius, Mr. Ryle, Mr. Barron, 
Another converted Jew that could be added to the list of those that were uh, spoken about earlier. Men who understood very clearly uh, the matters relating to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. They had a a clear insight uh, into those matters. So let me remind you tonight uh, of that that great fact. And as Mr. Toms has highlighted, I emphasize it to you again, we're seeking to republish Mr. Sapphire's uh, great commentary in the book of Hebrews. We're remembering his faith. We're seeking to follow what he taught. So we, we remember ministers who are no longer with us in this scene of time. Uh, preachers, teachers of the word of God who who are no longer here in our midst but the difference there in verse 17 is that it teaches us what our attitude be to to those leaders of the church who are still alive and it says we're to obey them we're to obey them and really the message of Paul here and there's other references to the leaders in, in, uh, in the chapter Verse 18, he exhorts for prayer. Verse 24, salute all them that have the rule over you. So it is a major theme of the chapter. But the message is a clear evidence. Take take this to heart tonight. A clear evidence of a godly life. One that's living their life for the Lord is that of of submission to the rulers, to the leaders of, of the church. Today we live... Uh, in a society when even Christians say nobody's going to tell me what to do I'll do what I want to do I'll do what I think myself remember that's the attitude of those who who lived in the days of the judges when every man did that which was right in his own eyes Uh, and we see that attitude only too too much too prevalent even among, the, even among the Lord's people. That's the way many churches are run today. And I want to point out to you uh, one important truth <coughs> that this verse is teaching is that every Christian should be a member of their local church. That's one of the lessons of the verse. Every Christian should submit themselves. Every Christian should be under the oversight of the elders of a local congregation. So I want to point that out and stress the importance of it to all that are present in this uh, this gathering uh, tonight. There's one other, and remember I said that at the start we're only looking at some. There's many things in the chapter we would like to highlight. But I think it is important to emphasize the matter of separation. You notice the message of verse 13 of the chapter. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. So here's a great call to separation. It's one of the greatest calls to separation in the New Testament scriptures. A call to separate and identify with Christ. And the call is to separate unto Christ regardless of the price and regardless of the consequences, bearing his reproach. We're to follow him, we're to follow the Saviour, Outside the camp. Even if it means scoffing and shame. Poured upon us uh, by others. Can I remind you. Revelation 17. Speaks of the whore. uh, The great whore of Babylon. Notice the language again. That is used. And it reminds us. You think of the whore of Babylon. That in the last days. There's going to be a false church. The devil's counterfeit for the church. And really that's what's happening in ecumenism and syncretism. That's what it's all about. And remember that syncretism goes further than ecumenism. Ecumenism is that false unity in the so-called professing churches of Christendom. Or among Christendom. So-called professing Christendom. But syncretism is uniting those churches with all the false religions. Uh, of uh, the world and that is the whole fashion in church circles today to be involved to join the club as it were but remember that's not God's will and it's not God's way God wants his people to be a separated people the book of Romans speaks about 
being separated unto the gospel, the gospel of Christ. And I want to urge that tonight in this message. There is a greater need, brethren and sisters. There is a greater need than ever for the churches and the Christians of our day to be separated. God doesn't say, go into those wicked unions and join them and participate in them. He says we're to come out from among them. We're not to go into those wicked unions. We're not to be in that apostate ecumenical camp. We're to be outside the camp. We're to come out from among them. Even if we're only small in number. Do you remember Daniel chapter 3? It tells the story of the whole kingdom. Just think of it. The whole kingdom was on their face in ecumenical worship of Nebuchadnezzar's great image. But there were three men still standing. Still standing true and faithful for God. And there were just three in number. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So I want to urge you tonight, brethren and sisters, follow their lead. Follow their example in this ecumenical age in which we are found. Stand for God. Stand and be separated uh, for Christ. Be separated for him in this day of unholy church alliances. And can I take the opportunity to remind you that is one of the objects of the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. Read them on the front page of the magazine. The last of the seven objects that are listed states to call for separation from ecumenism. So after 101 years of testimony, we unapologetically are still committed to that purpose. And we want to make that clear call in this message about practical godliness to your hearts uh, tonight. So here are some areas of life. Some areas of personal life, church life, national life, where godliness should be seen. The matter of strife, of strangers, your spouse, submission to the leaders of the church, and the great matter of, of separation. I'll finish with this. Uh, I want to point something out to you just before we close tonight that's very important. And that is that right through this final chapter, Paul keeps our focus on Christ. Remember that the theme of, of the, the, the whole book is the supremacy of Christ. But even in the final chapter when he comes to these practical things, he, he wants us to keep our sights and our gaze upon the Saviour. Some of the greatest statements, some of the greatest promises in the New Testament about the Lord Jesus are found here. In Hebrews chapter 13. For one thing we're reminded. Of his unfailing presence. Look at verse 5. We have the pledge. I will never leave thee. Nor forsake thee. Regardless of the days that you find yourself in. However dark and wicked and bleak and so on. Regardless of the days you find yourself in. He says he'll always be with you. You'll always have his presence. So what an encouragement that is. But you're also reminded in this chapter of his unchanging person. You think of the tremendous words of verse 8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. The unchanging Christ. Henry Francis Light wrote the words. Change and decay and all around I see. Does not sum up society today, the world today. And all the change is not for the better. But O thou that changest not, abide with me. So what, a, what an encouragement that is. So much change. But he changes not, brethren and sisters. Did you ever notice in that verse 8, the word and? It's repeated in the verse. If my understanding is correct, that's not usual grammar. There should be a comma in there and one of those ands at least should be removed. You only put the and at the very end of the list. But it's repeated in the verse. And I think it's done for emphasis. It's to drive that great truth home to our hearts. The same yesterday and today and uh, forever.
But in addition to that, to, to his own feeling presence and his own changing person, you have his own conquerable power. Because if you look at verse 20, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. I suggest to you that there's a verse that's worthy of long and deep consideration. Not even death and hell could conquer the power of Christ. He rose victorious from the grave. So what you'll see keeps our focus on Christ. Here's some great truths about the Saviour. And why are they there, brethren and sisters, in this chapter of practical application? I think for this reason. They're there to help us keep our eyes upon the Lord in all our everyday living for him. And, and I want to say to you, brethren and sisters, that's what will help us. That's what will always help us to live right and to live a godly life. It's when we keep near the Saviour and when we keep our eyes upon him. And I want to urge you to do that. Every day you live, in the days that face however wicked, however bleak, however dark, the days may become. Here's the great secret and the great key to living as Enoch lived, a godly life in an ungodly generation. You you do it by keeping your eyes upon the Saviour. And I want to encourage you to do that amidst all the tide of evil that is arising around us. So I pray the Lord, as we think of practical godliness, I pray the Lord to bless uh, all of these truths to, uh, to our hearts uh, tonight.